Hi, my name uh, is Chris Miller. My wife and I, Carice, have been members here at Remedy for a little over three years. If you want to open up your Bibles today, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to read 15 through chapter 2, verse 7. This is kind of the second part of a series that we're calling at Remedy Entrusted. We're going through the book of 2 Timothy. And kind of one of the main themes is, is that we've been entrusted with the gospel. And so, if you would, just stand kind of in honor of the word as we read. We're going to read through 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 2, 7. The word of God through Paul. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when you've heard from me, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The word of the Lord through Paul. You can be seated. So before we kind of jump into this, um, I'm going to pray. Um, but before we pray, just kind of a reminder. Last week, Jack talked about kind of the situation that's going on in Iraq. Um, many Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted in Iraq. And so while we're praying for God to pour out his Holy Spirit on us as we listen to his word, we're also going to pray that God um, would be in that situation, that the persecutors would see the faithfulness of the persecuted and they would turn to Christ through that, through the witness that they're bearing, and for the perseverance and the endurance of those who are being persecuted in Iraq. So let's just pray real quick. Father, you call us to be unashamed of the gospel. So many of our brothers and sisters' faiths are being tried as they're persecuted. They're being tried. The question's being asked, are you ashamed of the gospel? And so many of them are giving their lives, they're giving their homes, they're giving everything, saying we are not ashamed. We pray that you would just grant them endurance, grant them perseverance, grant them discipline in this time of struggle. We pray for the persecutors that they would see the faithfulness of the church and that they would turn to Christ, saying, what a Christ. He's worth dying for. He's worth giving up everything for. I pray that you would grant us endurance for in times of sufferings that might come to us when we, who are entrusted with the gospel, are called to stand upon it. Fill us with the Holy Spirit today. Open our minds to the word. Show us what Paul has for us today in 2 Timothy. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So an heirloom is something that's handed down within a family from generation to generation. 
it kind of marks you off. You know, if you receive the heirloom from, you know, your mother, your father, or whoever above you, if you receive the heirloom, it kind of marks you off as being part of that family. But it also kind of is symbolic of you participating in that story of the heirloom. So the heirloom started with great, 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 great granddaddy, and now it's come all the way down through me, and it carries with it a type of history. That's kind of what an heirloom is. And so the Titanic, right? Everybody knows the story. We've seen the movie, I'll never let go, Jack. And then, you know, she let go or whatever. Um, When the Titanic went down April 15th, 1912, you know, many people went down with it. One person who went down was Walter Chamberlain Porter. And one of the things that people discovered, they found some amongst his possessions was a little stick pin with a diamond on the end of it. And, you know, that was cool. Okay, we found this diamond. Flash forward 103 years, present day. That same diamond now has been put on a ring, and it's been passed from Walter to now it's on the ring of the wife of his great-grandson, Walt, named after Walter. And so think about that. This diamond has been passed from Walter to one of his children, to one of their children, finally to one of their children, Walt. And with it comes this story of the Titanic. With it comes this story of Walter Chamberlain. With it comes the story of his ancestors and so on and so on. So why am I giving you kind of this random story of the Titanic diamond heirloom? Well, because the gospel is a type of heirloom. It's the heirloom of the church. It's been passed down to us. It marks us out as the family of God. And with it, it symbolizes that we have been plugged into a story that goes all the way back to the originator of the story, Jesus Christ. And that's, that's kind of where we're going today. We've been talking about in 2 Timothy, this idea of been, we've been entrusted with the gospel. And last week, Jack kind of pointed out two facets to that idea of being entrusted. First thing is, well, what, what is entrusted? Entrusted is this idea of to place something or someone into someone else's care. So Jack gave the analogy of, okay, well, I'm going to place my kids into the care of a babysitter, right? So I'm entrusting my kids to the babysitter. Now, the second facet that Jack kind of pointed out, well, if I'm entrusting my kids, there's going to be a certain responsibility that I'm also passing on to the person, right? I'm not just going to be like, yep, just uh, make sure they're in bed by midnight and do whatever you want. Right? There's going to be you know, some guidelines. There's going to be some things that the babysitter is required to do. It's the same thing with us who've been entrusted with the gospel. First, the gospel's been passed to us. It's been given to us. We've received it. Second, with that gospel comes great responsibility that we are to do. And so this passage that we're looking at today is kind of focusing basically on the responsibility side of being entrusted. And so we're kind of asking two questions here that are basically the same question. What should someone who's been entrusted with the gospel, what should they look like? What, what should their life look like? Or another way of saying it, how should a gospel trustee carry out his or her responsibility? What does that look like? What, what comes along with the gospel when it's passed to us? And so Paul here is going to give kind of five works to Timothy, five things that he should be doing in his life in response of being entrusted with the gospel. And I think these things, they apply just as much to us today because like Timothy, we also, Remedy Church, have been entrusted with the gospel. So we're going to kind of dive in. We're going to look at these five works. And so verses 15 through 18, this is where we're going to find the first work. So the first thing I wrote, a gospel trustee should imitate those who have often and earnestly proven to be unashamed of the gospel. 
So again, a gospel trustee, someone who's been trusted, they ought to imitate those who have often and earnestly proven to be unashamed of the gospel. There used to be a time in this country where you didn't necessarily go to school, you know, hey, I want to be an electrician, so I'm going to go get a bachelor's degree in electricity or whatever. You didn't go to school necessarily to do that. One of the things that you did was you kind of became a follower of a good electrician. Um, you, came, you became an apprentice, right? And so the idea was, if I want to be a good electrician, I'd become an apprentice of a good electrician. Likely, I'd be following him around, I'd be handing him the tools, I'd be watching what he does, and eventually my, I myself would develop into a good electrician through watching and imitating him. Now, it goes both ways. You imitate a bad electrician, you're likely going to be responsible for burning down you know, a couple houses, right? So there's this idea of becoming an apprentice. And so if you were the apprentice of a great electrician, you would likely be great. If you were apprentice of a bad electrician, you would likely be bad. The whole idea in verses 15 through 18 is imitate. Look at the lives. Imitate. Look at those lives. There, there's a negative example. Don't imitate. And so verses 15 through 18 say this, and there's negative examples and a positive example. Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. So there's our negative example. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him mercy to find, or may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You well know all the service he rendered. So the idea behind these verses is, hey, Timothy, you see these two guys? They turned away from me. They were ashamed of my chains. They were ashamed of the gospel, and they walked the other direction. Don't do that. I don't want you to do that. Don't imitate. That's the bad electrician. But look at this, unci- this unciferous guy, right? This guy, not only did he often refresh me, but he sought for me in Rome. You know, I didn't know where, he didn't know where I was in prison, so he was looking for me in Rome. Look to that guy's example. Follow that guy. Be his apprentice. And so this passage... Um, it's kind of organized in what's called a chiasm. And the idea here is there's parallel units. Verse 15, there's parallel. Verse 18, there's parallel. And it's bringing our attention to the center of the passage. Paul wants us to focus on what's in the middle. And so kind of the parallel units. You've got a mention of Asia. Then you've got a mention of Ephesus. Ephesus was just the major city within the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. You've got this beginning prayer for Onesiphorus' household. And then you've got this prayer for Onesiphorus himself. Paul wants us to direct our attention to what comes in between those parallel units. And what we get is the two examples that Onesiphorus demonstrated that he's unashamed of Paul and he's unashamed of the gospel. And so let's look at these two examples. First one says he often refreshed Paul. And this idea of refreshment um, the word kind of carries with it this idea of you're, you're running this really long race, you're out of breath, you know, to the point where you're just, you can't even breathe. You're starting to black out. You're holding your hands up and all that. And then finally, about 30 seconds later, you finally get the air and you're like, oh, back to normal. Or you might think of, you're, you know, you swam down, you're, you're boogie boarding on a wave, and then all of a sudden it just crashes you under the ocean. And right when you think your lungs are about to explode, you see the top and you burst out through the ocean and oxygen just comes right into your lungs. That's the idea of refreshment here. And notice here that it's not just 
Oh, hey, he refreshed me one time. Often. Keyword often. Onesiphorus made a habitual, he made a habit. He made a duty of refreshing Paul as much as he could. So what's the big deal with that, right? Well, Paul's a prisoner at this time. Back in the day in ancient Rome, if you associated yourself with a prisoner, you're associating yourself with the crime. So there's one of two things that could happen to you. Either one, you'd be viewed as kind of like, hey, you're, sympath- you know, you're sympathizing with crime, and so we don't like you. Or worse, you're an accomplice to that crime. And so Onesiphorus himself, for associating with Paul, could be thrown into jail for the same reason that Paul's thrown into jail. On top of that, Onesiphorus' family could be thrown into jail for the same reason. So he's taking a big risk. He's unashamed of the gospel. Let's look at the second thing that he's doing. It says, Paul here says, he earnestly sought for me and found me. So Paul was imprisoned for his faith. He was preaching the gospel. He was thrown into prison. He's imprisoned somewhere in the Roman, you know, in Rome itself. Rome is kind of this major city within the Roman Empire, kind of the, the capital. And so the modern day equivalent would be Go search for a person in New York City without Facebook, without a cell phone, without, you know, um, a phone book, the yellow pages. You can't just look up, hey, prisoner, call him up. Hey, do you have a guy named Paul in your prison? You couldn't do that. And so he's searching. You get this picture of this guy that's just going, I mean, person to person and searching for the apostle Paul saying, hey, have you heard of this guy, Paul? Do you know where he's located? Going to the churches. Do you know where this guy's located? Until he found him. And so there's this earnestness. That's in the um, soul of Onesiphorus when he's searching for Paul. Kind of a quick side note. Notice Paul's response to the mercy that's shown to him. He prays, right? He prays for the household of Onesiphorus. Prays that they'd find mercy. But then he also prays specifically for Onesiphorus that he would find mercy from the Lord on that day. That's referring to the judgment day when God judges mankind. That because the mercy that Onesiphorus has shown Paul, that he would find mercy in return from God. And so it kind of harkens us back to this idea of um, what Jesus himself said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what what does this kind of mean for us today? I think what it means for us today is that we have to become good at what one commentator wrote, he said, the importance, we have to learn the importance of reading the lives of the saints. We need to look around to us today, and we need to look at the lives around us. We need to find the Onsiphrases, and we need to imitate those people. We need to find the people that are unashamed of the gospel, and we need to mimic them. We need to put their, the things that they do into our own lives. That's kind of where we're going with the first work. And so, do what they do. Become their apprentice. Don't become the apprentice of Phagellus and Hermogenes who are turning away from the Apostle Paul because they're ashamed. They don't want to be associated with a prisoner. They don't want to be associated with the gospel. So, if the first work that we're to do is to imitate those who have often and have earnestly demonstrated that they're unashamed, the second thing that Paul points to us, and this comes in chapter 2-1, the second work that a gospel trustee should do is be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This, is, this point right here is just really why the gospel is so great. It's why last week Jack was like, you know, he kind of made a little joke, you know, if you want to write a book, just put gospel-centered 
dog training, gospel-centered, insert blank, right? And that, that'll sell to evangelicals. Well, the reason is, is because the gospel really is everything for the Christian life, right? It's not only the thing that, you know, it's the news that were, you know, preached to us and then we see salvation. It's the thing that gives us salvation. It's also the thing that gives us strength to walk out and to do the Lord's will. It's the thing that sanctifies us, and it's ultimately the thing that we'll be glorified through. And so the gospel really is everything, And so Paul just told Timothy to look around at the examples around him, imitate the good ones, don't imitate um, the bad ones. And then he said, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the then, the word then in chapter 2, verse 1. The then is, you know, kind of a conjunction. It's, It's connecting us to what came before. It's not just the verses that we just read, but it's all of chapter 1. All of the commands, all of the admonitions, all of the advice that Paul's been giving to Timothy thus far. Basically, Paul's now saying, if you want to be able to do this stuff that I've been telling you, Timothy, you have to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the idea that he's going with here. I think this verse is just, it's the, it's the refreshment. It should be refreshing to our souls. It should be you know, like we were just talking about, going underwater and then coming up and getting that blast of oxygen. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first, the verb strengthened. It's in present. So really what it should read is continually be strengthened. So the idea here is, you know, don't, it's not a one and done kind of thing. You know, hey, wake up in the morning and just be strengthened. Get all your strength for the day and then go on. It's this idea of continually come before Christ, continually come to Christ and get the energy for the day, that, the works that are ahead of you today. Another kind of thing that's really cool is notice the phrase, in Christ Jesus. This is, um, this is Paul's bread and butter, so to speak. This is Paul's favorite doctrine. This is the thing that he has in his mind almost in every letter that he ever writes. If you go home and in the next couple of weeks you read the 13 letters of Paul, Take note on all the times that the word or the phrase in Jesus, in Christ, um, in him, or into Jesus, take note of how many times that phrase comes up. And you'll notice that his letters are just chock full of the phrase. And the idea here is that it's from our relationship to Christ that we get good gifts from God. And so, you know, we talk about justification by faith, one of the awesome things of the gospel, right? That Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness because of what he did on the cross and what he did in the grave. He raised from the dead. And when we believe in him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness, right? And that's one of the great things of the gospel. But see, that's just one of the many perks that comes to us from being united with Christ. See, for Paul, when a believer believes in Jesus, God counts everything that's in Jesus and he charges it to the account of the believer. So everything that is Christ's becomes ours. And everything that is ours becomes Christ's. That's how Christ could take our sin on the cross and die for our sin. And that's how we can now take his righteousness and be right before God. Notice here, though, Paul's not talking about righteousness at all. Here he's talking about strength. And so like I was saying, justification, righteousness, it's just one of the many perks of our relationship with Jesus. Here's another perk, strength. The same energy that Jesus himself had to do the Father's will 
when he walked the earth for three years doing his ministry and dying on the cross and raising from the grave, that same strength that Jesus has, we now have because of our union with Christ. And so that's one of the main points that Paul's making here. And so here's where the the exciting thing comes. Here's where the refreshment comes. Um, John Calvin kind of pointed this out. One of two things. One of them's common sense. The other one, just purely awesome, makes your head want to explode. So the first thing, grace comes from Jesus alone. We all agree, right? The passage says that grace comes from Jesus alone. Okay, Calvin, we got that. Number two, no Christian is destitute of it, since there is one Christ common to all. So what does that mean? That means that. G- that Paul, all the works that Paul did recorded in the book of Acts, he did them because he had strength that was found in the same Christ that you all are united to by faith. The same strength that Paul had access to, we have access to. The same works that Paul was able to do, we are able to do by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So Charles Spurgeon is a guy that you know, we like to quote at Remedy because he was just this awesome preacher. Um, preached like 10 million gazillion, almost an infinity amount of sermons. He would read like seven books a week. The dude was like a workhorse, like relentlessly. And so oftentimes his, his um, church members would come up to him and they'd be like, you know, Mr. Spurgeon, how do, you, how do you manage to do, how do you manage to accomplish all the things that you accomplish? And Spurgeon would just be like, he would look, you know, to the brother, to the sister, and he would be like, you've forgotten. There are two of us. There's two of us. Me? Jesus. Oftentimes in my own life, I forget. There's two of us. It's not just me. If it was just me, you know, forget it. It's over. But there's another one of us, right? We are united to Christ. And that other one of us happens to be God incarnate. I mean, there is just a tremendous amount of strength to be found in Christ Jesus. So the second thing that we're to do, we're to be strengthened by the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. Third thing, third word, this comes to us in verse two. Number third, number three, the work that, the third work that a gospel trustee should do is that they should entrust the gospel to others. And this is a big one. Third thing that we should do is we should entrust the gospel to others. This comes to us from verse two. It says this, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This passage seems to be um, particularly pertaining to um, Timothy setting up kind of church leadership, the office of teaching and preaching. And so it's like, well, what if I'm not a church leader? There's still tons of stuff that directly applies to us who are not church leaders. But let's look at kind of the context first, and then we'll get to the stuff that directly applies to everyone. In the context, Paul's telling Timothy, entrust the, the gospel to faithful men who have the ability to teach clearly to other people. This is the idea of guarding the gospel. Guarding it in kind of two ways, right? First, you know, they have to be faithful men. They have to live faithful lifestyles so the gospel won't get corrupted through their corruption of life. And the second way that you're kind of guarding the gospel there is they're teaching clearly, right? It doesn't get corrupted. I'm not up here like speaking in Spanish so then everybody goes the next day and is like, well, you know, I think he said this about the gospel. And then the other person's like, no, he actually said this. Nobody understands because I didn't teach clearly, right? And so the idea here is faithfulness of life and teaching clearly is to guard kind of the integrity of the gospel. But here's kind of the part that applies, I think, to everyone. 
Notice here that Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. See, Paul didn't just tell Timothy these things over in a corner, kind of whispering in his ear, here's the secret knowledge of the gospel. He said it in the midst of a lot of people, right? Witnesses. So maybe Timothy's sitting on the front row and I'm saying it to Timothy, but you all are bearing witness to what I'm saying. That's kind of one of the ways that Paul protected the gospel. It's widely attested. And so kind of what I mean here is the gospel is widely and publicly attested. It tells us that it has been established by many. And so you can't just make things up because there's witnesses that'll say, hey, I've heard what Paul said. He didn't say that. Now today, obviously, Paul's been gone for a very long time. We have the witnesses of the gospel preserved in the New Testament, right? Each of the New Testament books bear witness to what the disciples said, what Jesus himself said about the gospel. And so we get that. But then on top of that, now that we've read the witnesses, when Fudd and Jack are preaching the gospel, we ourselves are now sitting in you know, the chairs and we're bearing witness to what we're hearing. And so the main thing that applies to all of us is the gospel's meant to be shared. The gospel's meant to go out. The gospel's meant to be witnessed to, right? And so we all can kind of agree with that. So two things that directly apply to us. First, we know that the Bible commands that our leaders are to be faithful and to clearly teach. And so it's a way of we can hold ourselves accountable, we can hold our leaders accountable. Hey, you know, hey, I didn't really understand what you were saying, Chris. Can you, um, can you clarify that? You know, I think a lot of people misconstrued that. Can you clarify that? So we need to hold each other accountable to make sure that first, faithful lives, clear teaching, right? Second thing, we ourselves are the witnesses now. We are to go around and we are to, we are to take FUD's preaching. We are to take the gospel and we are to spread to others and say, bear witness to say, we can attest to this. It has touched our lives Christ has renewed us. Christ has shown us salvation in the gospel. I can bear witness to this. We are to be witnesses to the world about this. Now here's kind of a really cool thing, I think, in this passage. Um, call it gospel succession, since gospel seems to be the key word today. Gospel succession is this beautiful process that you can trace all the way back to Jesus. So think about who shared the gospel with you. Who bore witness to you that the gospel is the real word of God? Who, who shared it with you? All right, then ask the question, now that you have that name in your mind, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was family member, maybe it was your parents. Ask who shared the gospel with that person. Ask who shared the gospel with that person. Ask who shared the gospel with that person. And you can keep tracing it all the way back, and your faith, like an heirloom, can be traced all the way back to the author of salvation himself, Jesus. And so one of the cool things about this idea of entrusting the gospel to others, to bearing witness to others, is that we are all participating in this great story of Jesus Christ. We all have a place in this story through the gospel. I mean, that's just, I mean, that makes me want to jump. But I'm not going to jump because I can't. So you are in a long line of gospel trustees and you are part of the family history because you have the heirloom of the church, the gospel. So the third thing, right? Entrust the gospel to others. Bear witness to the gospel to others. This brings us to the fourth thing. This is in verses 3 through 6. The fourth work that the gospel trustees should do is that they should share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. 
share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. This kind of is tying back to chapter 1, verse 8. says this, um, Paul's telling Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the, the point that Paul's making, right? We ought to be willing to share in suffering. We ought to be willing to die for the gospel. We ought to be willing to sacrifice for the gospel. Now Paul really wants to drive this point home because if you look at the next three verses, four through six, he gives three separate kind of analogies to kind of drive this point in, right? You get three separate analogies. So all the analogies have kind of two things in common. First thing, they all kind of have this idea of hard work, discipline, and single-mindedness and dedication. And then the second thing, there's a, there's, a, there's a reward kind of waved in your face in each one of these analogies. So hard work, reward. Hard work, reward. So let's look at them. Verse 4. This is the soldier analogy. He tells us to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 4 he says this. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so simply put, a soldier is one who has a commander, one who gives him the commands, passes it down the line. The idea here is that Remedy Church, we are soldiers. Jesus Christ is our commander. And so my dad was kind of, he was in the Air Force for 20 years as a jet mechanic. So I kind of asked him, you know, tell me a little bit of the story, some of the discipline, some of the work that goes into being a soldier. And so he, he kind of lists off a couple things. First, every recruit goes through what's called basic training. Six weeks without your family, without Walmart, without cell phones, without Facebook, without basically any civilian affair that you can think of, right? And what you do on this six week is you do 20 hours of work a day, and then you sleep for four. I don't know about y'all, but that's about half of what we ought to sleep, right? So I don't know how long you can last, but apparently six weeks you can make it. Next thing you do, right, you're expected to travel with your unit everywhere. So occasionally you might go, you might get sent anywhere, right? And it could be anywhere from a week to half a year. Another thing, you know, if you're not being sent out without your family is you're working for, you're working a normal job on the airfield, right? 40 hours a week. And then finally, you could be randomly called to just a, a year tour somewhere or a multiple year tour somewhere. And you're just, you pick it up and you pack and you go. You don't, you don't question, you do it because that's what your commander said. And so you kind of look at some of that and you kind of get this idea of some of the discipline some of the willingness to suffer that you have to do in order to be a, a soldier. And so kind of the questions that pertain to us in this passage, do our lives look like this for Christ? Is it, are we soldiering for Christ? Are we good soldiers or are we bad soldiers? Um, here's the beauty of the soldier analogy, and this is the reward part. He does it, why? Why? So he can please his commander. And so this idea of being a good soldier, this idea of, striving, doing hard work for Christ, it brings pleasure to our God. And that in itself is a reward that should just motivate us to do everything for Jesus, right? We are bringing pleasure. We are bringing joy to Jesus, essentially is the idea. So let's look at the athlete analogy. Sunday night football is about to start, right? Um, college football is almost back. So this applies to us. The athlete analogy. Um, verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In the Roman games, in ancient Rome, during Paul's time, um, the idea of being crowned, when you were, um, 
competing in an event, say it's a race or a wrestling match or whatever it is, the winner of this prestigious event would receive a crown of kind of like it's like a reef of olive leaves. And, you know, you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I guess I don't have to shop for Christmas. I can just hang this up on my door and we're good, right? Well, a lot more comes with it than just the wreath. Honor, personal honor, but also your whole family's honored. And then on top of that, your whole town, your home village, your home city is brought to prestige through your competing. Now, it goes both ways. You compete lousy, everybody's going to, you know, your town's going to be the laughing stock of the Roman Empire. You compete really well, you just earned total respect, total prestige for your city. I mean, low-class men went to high-class when they won a prestigious event. So there was more riding on it than just, you know, the reef. It was more what the reef kind of represents. What does Paul mean by the phrase, um, what does he mean by, you know, he says, uh, unless he competes according to the rules. So what's meant by that? You know, I kind of think of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing cross country and I absolutely hate running. And so I'm running and, you know, oh, hey, if I cut through the woods right here, this will cut half the race off, right? And so you cut through the woods, you didn't compete against the rules. Is that, is that kind of what Paul's saying here? I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, during Paul's time, there was a custom, the, the rules that he's referring to, the law, literally, um, is this idea that before a prestigious event, there was a 10-month period allotted that every athlete, so if you're a wrestler, you have to go through this 10-month regimen in order just to compete in this event. And it included what you ate, it included where you lived, it included the physical training exercises that you did. Everything was out and spelled out right in front of you. And if you did it, then you qualified. If you didn't do it, you didn't qualify. If you did nine months of it and then all of a sudden you had to return home because your wife was having a baby, you're disqualified. So there was this idea that you had to go through this 10-month thing. Everything's regulated. On top of not only going through that, you had to do it well. Uh, one of the philosophers, Philostratus, a little bit after Paul's time, kind of said in regards to this idea... If you have labored so hard as to be entitled to go to Olympia and have banished all sloth and cowardice from your lives, it's pretty intense, then march boldly on. But as for those who have not so trained themselves, let them depart wherever, wherever they want. So basically, put in the work, do it well, or get out of my face because I don't want to watch you Monday night, right? That's the idea that's going on here. So not only is it just this grueling 10-month period, but you're expected to do it well. Like, you can't just be like, well, I'm the worst one in the pack, but I'm just going to do this. You, know, you get kicked out. It's over. And so there's a lot going into this idea. So what does this mean for us today? Take a note. Look at the discipline. Look at the hard work. Look at the single-mindedness that's going into this training. Just to compete for, you know, a little athletic event. You get this wreath that's going to basically turn brown like five days later, right? So we are in a race right now. We're in a race for Christ. And so how are we competing? You know, are we putting in the hard work? Are we putting in the discipline? Are we enduring any suffering that's coming our way? Let's move on to the third analogy, the farmer. This is my favorite for bad reasons. The farmer analogy. Paul writes in verse 6, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now the Christian is compared to a farmer, and notice he says ought. It's the hardworking one who ought to have the first share in the crops implying that the not-so-hard-working farmer, he shouldn't have a share of the crops. 
All right, and so the idea here is pretty simple. The farmer planted, the farmer tended, the farmer watered, the farmer grew, and then finally the farmer harvested. I think he gets to bite into that first ear of corn, right? He gets the pleasure of saying, you know what? The first fruits of all my work, all my labor. That's the idea here. And so Chris and I have this great idea. We're going to garden. We're going to make a garden, right? And so we're like, you know, this is going to cut our, our vegetable price down by like 100% because, you know, seeds are cheap and, you know, we can always work this garden or whatever. And so we borrow Daryl Helton's tiller and we till up a little bit of land, you know, a little perfect square. We start rowing, you know, the land, making rows on the different squares or whatever for the seeds. We plant the seeds. We give it a little bit of water that first day. Enter pregnancy time period. Carice gets pregnancy. It, yeah, pregnancy. Chris gets pregnant. So Chris was the one I was kind of relying on to do most of the gardening because, you know, I, I'm busy with other duties. And, you know, I was like, Chris, you know, honey, we can do this, but no, it falls on you ultimately. And so she gets pregnant. So obviously she's not gardening as much. And so the first day that we planted and watered, we haven't watered and we haven't weeded since. <laughs> right. Now, in South Carolina, you can get away with not watering because God has your back. It rains every other day, and so we got away without watering. Stuff was still growing, right? There's this, like, corn crop, like, just one, rising up out of the darkness, rising up out of the ashes, and I'm like, we're still going to get an ear of corn, right? We're, we didn't do anything, but we're going to get an ear of corn. Well, slowly but surely, it's now kind of turning sideways. You go up, and if you observe it at close range, it's yellow, I'm sure if you touch it, it will crumble and then go into a million different pieces. It's dead. It's got choked by the weeds. And so basically kind of the analogy that I'm giving you here is like, don't farm like I garden, right? That's not what God's calling us to. Be a hardworking farmer, not a Chris Miller gardener. And so here's a couple questions that we can kind of ask ourselves. How much does our Christian life, our Christian walk, our following after Jesus, how much does it look like a half-hearted gardener instead of a hard-working farmer. Gardening is just a hobby, right? It, it was only going to take Chris and I an extra few hours. Gardening is just a hard, hobby, but farming is your life. I mean, you're not, you're not just, oh, two hours, done. It's 13 hours. Okay, the sun's gone down. Let's go to sleep. Wake up and do it again. Um, so how much does our Christian walk look like the half-hearted gardener instead of the hard-working farmer? Which one is Jesus to, do, to us? Is he just the hobby, or is he the life? Is he the farming, the hard work? So all of this kind of taken together, these three things taken together, Paul is basically emphasizing three times in a row, Timothy, be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer hardships. Be willing to suffer persecution for the sake of um, the gospel. Sharing the suffering as a good soldier, one who's disciplined, single-minded, and hardworking. And so verse 2, we were like, Hey, be strengthened in Christ Jesus. Find strength. He's your energy drink, right? Just be strengthened in Christ Jesus. There's, and it's just this wonderful verse. It's like, hey, God's just going to pour energy into me. It's going to be easy. Well, now we get to see kind of what it looks like to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not easy, right? It's not like, oh, just unlimited energy. It looks like the soldier who's in the midst of his training. It's going to feel like the athlete feels during the 10th month of his 10-month training. It's going to feel like the hard-working farmer. Every second, you're going, to be will, you're going to be wanting, oh, you know, I'm about to give up. My strength's about to give out. But the beautiful thing that I can promise you 
that Paul's promised Timothy, that ultimately God himself has promised us, is that there is enough strength to carry out the work found in Christ Jesus. There is unlimited amount of strength. It's going to be hard, but there's enough strength to do it. And here's kind of, here's kind of the appeal. Why do all this hard work, right? Well, again, the reward. There was the reward, right? We get the, to please our commander, or as the athlete, we get the honor, the glory poured over us in our household and our home cities for competing well. Or um, if you go to the farming analogy, you get to eat the first fruits of what's grown, right? There's this reward. And so there's this idea of, well, what are you saying, Chris? Are you telling me just to seek after personal gain? You know, is that selfishness? The Bible never teaches that we're not to seek after personal gain. It just teaches a certain way how to seek after it. And so this is what I mean by that. Um, seeking reward in Christ is encouraged by the Bible, right? Jesus tells this wonderful story. Man goes out in the field. He finds treasure, buried treasure, right? And it's like, it's billions of dollars worth of treasure. The dude goes away and he joyously goes away, right? He's happy. He is skipping down the road and he is selling everything that he owns so that he can buy that field. Why? So that he can have the treasure. We are working so hard for Christ. We are doing the things he's called us to do. Why? So that we can have Christ Jesus. So that we can have our reward. Jesus himself. And when you seek Jesus, you're not causing harm to those around you. You're benefiting those around you. Because you're seeking the one supreme God over everything. And you're doing what he's commanded you to do. Now, here's where the harm comes when you seek personal gain. When you're seeking something that's not what you ought to be seeking. And so... I just kind of want to read a quote. This comes from John Piper in um, a book that he calls God is the Gospel. It's just a question. This is kind of a test. You know, what, what do we see as gain? What, what's the value that we're placing and where are we placing it? And the question is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ is not there? And that, that really drives to the point. Where is our joy? What, what are we calling reward? What are we seeking as personal gain? Is it Jesus or is it something else that we're kind of masking or you know, calling it Jesus? And that, that question really drives it home. So the fourth thing that we ought to do, right, we ought to be willing to share in the suffering as a good soldier, as a hardworking, disciplined, single-minded soldier for Christ. This comes to the fifth thing. This is found in verse 7. A gospel trustee should think over the teachings concerning Jesus in the Bible, or kind of a shorthand um, form of that. A gospel and trustee should just think over the gospel, because really, all the, I stretched it out to kind of all the Bible, but really, if you read the Bible, the Old Testament's pointing forward to the gospel, and it's showing the build-up stage to the gospel. The New Testament's pointing at the gospel. The whole Bible story is essentially about the gospel. And so he concludes in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice the perfect balance between hard work, and God's sovereignty. Paul always does this. It blows my mind every time, but he always does this, right? He's commanding you to think. Put in the hard work of thinking. Oh, but don't worry. God will give you the understanding, right? And so there's just this, 
this idea of we're working, but God's giving us the results. Um, so it's likely here he's talking to Timothy specifically about what kind of happened before in chapters 1 and chapters 2. He's basically saying, you know, think over the things that I've told you, which have basically pertained to the gospel. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. But one of the things that's awesome about this passage is he's referencing Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. And I'll read it for you. Um, it says this, For Yahweh, our God, gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In Proverbs 2, the context of the whole chapter, you find a father giving instructions to his son. Just like so far in Timothy, we've seen twice, Paul, Paul calls Timothy my child. It's a father giving instructions to his son. And also within the context of Proverbs 2, you have this father warning his child, what happens when you turn away from wisdom? What happens when you seek after wisdom? Same kind of thing Paul's talking about. Timothy, what happens when you turn away from the gospel? What happens when you turn toward the gospel and you seek after it? And so, kind of the, here's the gist of what Paul was basically saying. The argument runs like this. If you seek the gospel like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and you will find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Again, you get that, our work, but God's answer kind of thrown all into it. We're seeking after wisdom, but yet it's God who gives wisdom. We're thinking about the gospel, but it's God who gives understanding. And there's that perfect balance. And so a good gospel trustee should seek after the gospel like silver and treasure it like gold. He should think over the gospel and over what the Bible says concerning Jesus. So in conclusion, I just kind of want to give four challenges um, you know, if you have something to write on, write. If you don't, you know, take out your cell phone. You can text it to yourself. It's the only time you get permission to text in church, right? Um, four quick things. Paul gave Timothy five. I'm giving you four. First, go home and think about the different people that you know or have seen clearly who exemplify what it means to be unashamed of the gospel, Consider how you can be a, become an apprentice of that person. Consider how you can imitate that person. So the question basically is, who is your onsiphorus? Who are you looking to who has an unashamed lifestyle that you can imitate, that you can start doing what they do? Second thing, go home and think about how you can entrust the gospel to other people. So the first one was about someone pouring into you. This one's more about who are you pouring into? And so if the first one's who is Onesiphorus, this one is who's your Timothy? You know, who, who's the guy that you've got, the young guy that you've got right now that you're pouring into, that you're encouraging, that you're as a father giving instruction to a child? Think about someone, you know, if you, if you have someone already, you know, keep pouring in. Think about more ways of pouring. If you don't have someone, be thinking through people in your life that you cross paths with that you can kind of take under your wing and pour gospel wisdom into them. Third thing, go home and examine your work ethic for Christ. What are we doing in service of our commander? Are we hardworking? Are we disciplined? Are we single-minded in our walk with Christ? How can we do more? What's, what's some other things that we can do for Christ? Are you willing to endure all types of suffering for the gospel as a good soldier? You know, is Christ that treasure in the field that you will joyously throw away everything for. And the fourth thing, take time now. We're, we're about to have a time of 
worship songs that we sing to Jesus um, to glorify him, to find joy in him. Take time now and think about your relationship with Christ. Think about your union with Christ. Think about being in Jesus. Think about the many blessings, the rewards that we kind of talked through, right? Righteousness, strength, um, a prayer line to the Father, seated on the right hand, or as Ephesians 2 says, blessed with every spiritual blessing. Take time and just think through those things and just let that be your motivation today as we sing songs for Christ. If you've never followed Jesus, if you don't know what this, what, you know, if this is completely foreign to you, this idea of being in Christ and his righteousness counted as your righteousness, but you want to know more, you want to follow him, you know, then I would, I would ask for you to look at him, believe in him, follow after him. Grab me, I'll be in the back. I would love to talk to you more about the gospel. Grab the person who came with you. I'm sure he or she would love to talk to you about gospel. Grab Fudd, he'll also be in the back. Um, we would love to talk to you about the gospel. So take this time, be motivated by what we have in Jesus Christ. Be motivated by our great reward, Jesus himself, and worship the Lord. And so now may you, Remedy Church, treasure the beautiful gospel heirloom that you've received. May you guard it and may you pass it on to others as Paul taught Timothy to do. Let's pray. Father, you are beautiful. And truly the gospel, the good news is behold your God. We get to behold our God in Jesus Christ. I pray that he would be the greatest treasure of our hearts that our joy would come from him, that our hard work would be for him, and that we would constantly come back to him to be strengthened in the grace that's found only in him. And that we would remember that he is the same Christ that Paul followed. He is the same Christ that all the disciples followed. He's the same Christ that we follow. Show us our Christ. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy in you. Amen.